decade ago, if you'd heard that sound, you'd probably look for a swarm of bees and been prepared to run. Gorillas, they hear this and they do run. But many of us now recognize that somewhat annoying sound as a small drone or UAV, an unmanned aerial vehicle. Today, the sky is literally unlimited to the rapidly evolving drone world. Flying technology driven by need and bound by only by our imaginations. My guest today is primatologist Serge Witch, and with his eyes firmly fixed on the sky, he is reimagining great ape conservation science as an aerial adventure. Serge focuses on primate behavioral ecology, tropical rainforest ecology, and the conservation of primates and their habitats, but from a treetop perspective. He is also the founding director of the nonprofit conservationdrones.org. Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and welcome to Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at GLOBIO.org. Hi, Serge, and welcome to Talking Apes. It's, uh, this was, I think I should have used a drone to track you down. It seems like it's <laughs> taken us several weeks to get coordinated, but I'm excited to have you on and talk about um, conservation technology. And in fact, I guess you have a new book coming out entitled Conservation Technology. Yes, uh, edited with, with uh, a friend and colleague, Dr. Alex Peel at UCL. Uh, we thought it's uh, would be useful to bring out a book with a, a wide variety of chapters on conservation technology, so not focused on either camera traps or drones or acoustic sensors, but on all of them, so that people can get a feel of, of how all these different technologies are being used. We'll get into more of the other types of technology, but I wanted to start with, with drones in particular, uh, or UAVs, and maybe... I think there's a lot of misconceptions by the public out there. I mean, drones are, they, they run the gamut of sizes, but there's, you know, we hear a lot about them in terms of military type uses, and then all the way down to, you know, the smaller, almost toy type drones that are now, I think, more ubiquitous than, than they were a few years ago. But it's a relatively new technology and the evolution has been pretty fast. So maybe you could just give us a, a sense of the landscape or the, the the skyscape, I guess, of what t what drones are like and their shapes and sizes and how they're applied. So they, they indeed come in, in 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 huge, large ones that are that are used for 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 military purposes, but also for for climatic research and and other other things by by large research institutes and governments to 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 the small toys that that um, people fly in their house and. Um, for conservation purposes, there there's a, a wide variety being used. Uh, some institutes have access to to some of the the high end drones that that can fly through pretty bad weather and can cover large distances and fly for for many hours over the ocean or over land to 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 collect data. Uh, but I, I would I would think that that most conservation people at the moment use the smaller sized, <clears throat> more affordable systems, and uh, there there's a, a general division in drones. So there's there's multi rotors, these little helicopter like systems that take off vertically and then fly around, and you can land vertically. Then there's the, the systems that look more like like standard planes, so they have wings. They, they, you generally throw them in the air and they, they land on their, on their, on their belly, um, so to speak. So you need a, a bit of, of, of grass to, to land on. And then there are systems that are now coming on the market that are in between. They're called hybrid systems and they generally take off as a multi rotor. So they have sometimes rotors, propellers on the wings and then they take off. Uh, vertically, and then they switch to a propeller at the back of the plane, and then they fly horizontally. So in a way, you you get the the duration out of them 
that that is uh, based on the lift that the wings provide. Um, but you get the, the the nice aspect of it that you can land and take off in relatively small areas, and that you don't need a large, perfectly mowed English lawn to land on, so that your system doesn't get damaged. So there, there, those hybrid systems, I think, will be be very interesting uh, to to keep an eye on for the coming years because I think they will become more affordable and more user friendly and and more being used because they bring them out with an array of sensors as well. Um, the, those hybrid systems are the, is that something that has been driven by the need in co- conservation type applications, or is it are are you and other people picking it up from some other application that it was originally designed for? They in, in they have been used in in, in military uh, situations like the Osprey and, and the Harriers are examples of that, um, and I'm not sure if it's been driven by conservation, but it's certainly been driven by um, the fact that in many situations you don't have. Uh, the luxury of of a good landing space, and that landing um, larger systems on on runways is is also very difficult for uh, for 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 pilots um, if if you're not trained as a pilot. Um, so therefore, I think people thought, well, then what about these in between systems? So if you if you work near a, a mining quarry and you don't have a large open area. To, to belly land in, or, or it's all rocks that would damage the, the foam system, then these systems are ideal because they, they would then just gently come down on a, on a small bit of grass or a small bit of, of, of stone and, 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 and not be damaged. Um, but in, in conservation, it's incredibly useful because we often work in areas where, where there's vegetation. There's almost always trees. There's almost always uh, shrubs. There's almost always something that will damage a drone as it as it lands if it if it has to glide down. So the hybrids are are very useful. I, I'm only laughing because uh, I've I've lost. I think I'm on. I've lost four drones now, filming in the tropics, and I've turned them into giant weed eaters and pruning machines as they yeah. crash into <laughs> trash into the forest. It's it is a difficult environment. You work in the tropics a lot, and and it's in a very difficult environment to to fly in. You began your career in Sumatra flying drones. Um, that's a tropical rainforest. You were looking at orangutans. What were you hoping initially? What were you you after? What type of drones were you flying, and what were you trying to achieve? Yeah, so this is almost well. It's it's ten years ago now that that um, Professor Leon Pinko, who's at the National University of Singapore, and I were. We're having a chat about uh, monitoring of animals in, in tropical systems, and that it's so difficult to do this. That it's great to be in a forest, collect data in a forest. It uh, we both enjoy uh, camping out there and, and walking in those forests, but the going is slow. It's expensive. You don't cover much ground, and and the situation in the tropics is changing very rapidly. There's a lot of deforestation happening or logging, so. In an ideal situation, we would keep very good track of, of what changes are occurring. And then we thought, well, what if you could, particularly for orangutans, fly over a forest with a camera and take photos of the nests that they make? All great apes make, make a nest at night that they, that they sleep in, and orangutans do so as well. Um, so through counting those nests, we get an indication of where they are and how many of them are. But to do that on the ground takes a lot of effort. So we were hoping to do this from the sky. So we built a very uh, cheap uh, drone fixed wing based on a on a on a hobby fuselage and, and wings, and uh, we put a camera in and we tested it out in Switzerland, and then we took it to uh, to Sumatra and did I think thirty six flights in three days or something and miraculously and that, that's credits to Leon Pin because he was the pilot it it didn't crash it had some 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 near misses but uh but uh it it survived and and we got some really great data and 
immediately, I think both we were, were completely sold on on drones. That the first videos of seeing the forest from the sky at such high resolution was for me sort of a a way that I always wanted to see the forest that I worked in, but never could, because you can't get satellite images at that resolution. Uh, you can't hiring regular planes or helicopters is incredibly expensive and tricky to fly in 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 those areas. Um, so this was was amazing to in in a ten or twenty minutes flight see so much of the area and and get get this aerial view or, and and get a new perspective on a place that you know so well from from the ground. There's there's been this sort of roller coaster of excitement around using technology in conservation. And like a lot of technology, people kind of got carried away with it. Where are we now? I, I think in, in terms of the, 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 the sort of excitement curve that, that, that has been used for so much different technologies. Uh, there, there, yeah. In the beginning, there was a lot of excitement. There was a, were a lot of people that were sort of, yeah, trying to jump on the bandwagon. And I think some of that excitement is, is something that, that, um, we generated with being very excited. And, and we always try to, to also explain that there are certain difficulties with using the technology. But, but, uh, yeah, many people certainly did get excited. Um, I think it, it is more mature now. There's more awareness of the issues with, with, with drones that it's not something you, potentially do as a purely a side job you really need to to make it something you focus on there yes they're fairly easy to fly but but yeah as, as you mentioned it's also very easy to lose them you uh the, the perspective of flying a drone in a complicated three-dimensional environment really takes a lot of training and the, and even then it's very easy to fly into a tree or and 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 that happens, I think, to all of us. So I think that level of understanding is there now. The other thing that I think people are starting to realize is that um, these things do crash, and that you have to take that into consideration if you if you plan for to use these systems for monitoring. That some training is needed, and I think also people are now realizing that you you have to really try to determine what you want to use it for. Because you easily get thousands of images, hundreds of hours of video, but what were you actually planning to do with it? So what is the question you, you need it for? So I think those things are maturing. What, what has not matured yet is the maintenance part of drones. Um, if, you, if you buy a car or if you, you would buy a, a Boeing, uh, there will be a very clear maintenance schedule by the manufacturer. Uh, uh, so many hours you fly, then you need to replace the, the motor. So many hours you replace this and that and the other. With drones, that's unfortunately not the case, and that that poses a bit of a challenge to to users because if 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 as a whether you're a university or a company or an NGO or a, a park manager, you you want to know okay what what are the maintenance costs of the, of this thing. Of the Land Rover that I buy, I, I know it. I can calculate it. I can put it in a budget. But for a drone, how long is this thing going to fly? If, if I treat it well, when is the first motor of a DJI drone going to give up? The companies don't really give much guidance on this at the moment. And I think that needs to mature because people want to use these systems, but they, they need to know how to budget for these over the duration of their, their, their lifespan and when to send it off to, uh, a shop to have the engines replaced or, or have, have just have a general checkup. Um, so some of the companies that sell them provide information on that, but though, but the, the companies that manufacture them, as far as I know, that still for some of the, the lower end systems at least doesn't exist. And I think that's a, that's a problem that the manufacturers need to, uh, to deal with because it is still quite an investment to buy a drone. So you want to know how to maintain it and what the costs of that will be. That's interesting. That's not something 
I guess because I've crashed them so quickly, I haven't had to worry about <laughs> about the motors giving out. <laughs> it's it's uh, ripping the cameras off the front of the machine or something. Um, but that that is interesting. It isn't something I had thought about, and it is especially if you're looking at budgets. Um, you know, I can see park managers and others who have you know limited resources, and they're trying to figure out how to use those resources in an effective way. It's an expensive item. I'm curious about what you see as the other challenges of this technology. What, what are some of the things that you think about and you think that we need to be thinking about, especially from a conservation standpoint? Yeah, so I, I think one of the challenges is still the, the, the regulations surrounding drones. In many countries, you can only fly 500 meters away from you, which... Um, is is problematic if you want to cover large areas of a national park to to look at certain tree species or look at look at certain animal species <clears throat> you do want to to fly much further away so i think that's an an, an issue that 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 um yeah needs to be be uh, addressed of course everybody wants to fly safely and i think that's where the maintenance part is is relevant as well because it relates to risk and all these regulations have to do with risk. Um, so the more we know about maintenance issues, the, the better can we quantify risk and, and try to, to minimize it. But from a conservation point of view, I think almost everybody wants to fly for very long durations of time uh, because some of these conservation areas are just vast. The, the more affordable systems fly for an hour or maybe an hour and a half if they're fixed wings, but if they're multi-rotors, maybe for 30 minutes. Which is still a fair duration, but it's it's less than 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 some people uh, would like. Um, so that's I think something that 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 will will continue to improve. Um, the other thing is 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 how to fly them in a in a sensible way in terms of what they mean for the environment and 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 the people living in those environments as well as the animals. And I think that is still. An area that needs much more thought. When often, to, to, to start with the animal side, often when we fly a drone, um, we try to think about the disturbance it might cause to the animal we're actually studying. But what we don't generally do a large uh, assessment of all the other animals that live, live there and could be disturbed. So if I go to look for orangutans, I, yeah, I, I, I will we'll fly over them, we'll look at their reaction. And then try to estimate how high we can fly, what kind of pattern we can fly, how noisy the drone can be. Are we starting to assemble any kind of data on that? Like, you know, people who actually have been flying a lot around, let's say, orangutans. Are we getting information? We're beginning to develop a catalog. So if, if it's somebody new goes out to work on orangutans, they go, okay, generally these these are the sort of parameters in which we fly. Is anybody doing that? Kind of Not thing? in a, in a, in the way that there's a, a, an easily accessible database, but there 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 have just been some studies or one study come out that that looked at um, for a variety of drones uh, the, the the noise levels at that these drones generate and how they would be perceived by animals and when it would go over a cer- certain threshold that it that is often um, linked to to uh, to, 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 to disturbance when, when people listen to things. So I think people are starting to work on this, but we're still a long way away f- from this. And then you, of course, you have, uh, many different animal species in, in a forest. You have primates, you have birds, you have insects. You have no idea, uh, how we disturb insects. Uh, we have some idea, uh, how we disturb birds, but we have also no idea how we, we disturb many of the other mammals that are there or reptiles or, and that is, I think, a, a problem, but I think it's not a problem that's unique for drones. What, what is interesting that, that it has become a, a, a more of a discussion point and, and something that reviewers of scientific papers and, and the general audience bring up as well when they see drone footage and they see animals react. Um, but of course, it's something that um happens as well if we go into a forest we disturb animals we 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 walk over plants we we have to sometimes cut uh some things to to make a path for ourselves um so if if we start to look at disturbance i, I feel we need to look at all the things 
all the different technologies, but also the, the sort of the baseline, which is a person going into a certain habitat to collect data. And can a particular technology like a drone get those same data with less disturbance than any of the other methods? So I think we need to look at this from a comparative perspective. And then when you have to, to get data from a certain area, make a decision based on a, on the assessments of all those different technologies. And that's something that we're a long way away from. Just for many of the technologies, it hasn't been assessed. And for people walking in a forest, it has hardly been assessed. We all know that we're a major disturbance, but we, uh, reviewers hardly ever ask that when you publish a paper on, on counting orangutans in, in, in the field. If you, as soon as you do it with drones, they'll be immediately like, Oh, what's the disturbance? And I think, I think that's a very good point, but let's see it in perspective. Um, and then see, see what, 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 what the disturbance is, because our disturbance must be phenomenally high for, for if we walk into a forest. So to follow up on that, I think that's a two-step process uh, in my mind anyway, that one is an education process, one is an application process. Are we teaching researchers uh, academically to think about those things, about disturbances as part of how they approach their research? This is how you actually can work in the field with the least amount of disturbance, just to get cleaner data, but also to just minimize the overall impact. From my own teaching, I know that it's getting more attention now because we're using the technologies like drones that, that, that make noise that might be mistaken for a predator by, by birds or, or other animals. It is a good um, entry to, to, to have this discussion and to bring it in, in, into education and, 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 and try to make sure that when you go somewhere that you, you, you minimize your disturbance and, and think carefully about all the factors that might cause disturbance to, to certain animals, but but from from when I studied at least, yeah, there was some attention given to it for the particular animal you studied, and a little bit on yeah, don't go too wild with your machete in the forest, but yeah, not not all that much about about other aspects of our behavior. I think some people tend to be be quiet in the forest because they don't want to disturb animals and they want to listen. But yeah, some other people make a, quite a bit of noise. And then, yeah, maybe, maybe that's not something you should do. And maybe it's, it's because you will disturb a lot of animals. You will hamper their communication, etc. So I think it's something that we can give much more attention, like our role in these systems. But then, then of course, the, the other thing uh, that is, 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 is extremely relevant is, um, and, and sensitive. Uh, is the, how we collaborate and, and inform people that might be in the forest or people that might be living surrounding those forests uh, so that they don't all of a sudden see a drone in the sky that, that might on the flight take photos of their houses or them walking there. And, and even in, if they're in the forest and a photo of them could be taken, do we need to warn them? Do we need to have signage that they know that a drone might take photo? All these sort of um, what some people now call bycatch, where camera traps take, that are there to, to monitor animals take photos of people, or drones that are there to, to monitor trees or, or, or animals take photos of people. What do we do with those images? And, and uh, how, how do we work with communities that are living there to to see if it's okay that, that we fly drones there or, or, or not. Because I, I can certainly imagine that, that that some villagers are fine with it, but that others might might not be so happy. Similar to that I wouldn't be so happy if a drone would be buzzing over my backyard all the time. I would also wonder what what it's doing there. Is it taking photos? Uh, of my house or, or, or not, who's flying it. So I think we, we need to be very um, uh, careful in, in how we deal with those aspects as well, particularly because drones are associated with, with, with to some extent, with military uh, machines. 
it, it can in certain communities be extra sensitive, uh, but also because they're a tool that takes data. It, it's uh, something that we, we often go into villages. We often talk with people. We often ask them if it's okay. We often show them the footage in, in Madagascar. Two years ago, we had about a thousand people, I think, on the village square at night looking at, at, at footage we, we took. We, we flew with a lot of people there to show them what the technology is to, 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 and, and we asked the, the village for permission to fly over the, the marshes there. I think that that's good to do. Um, but it also means a, a, a time investment. It means, uh, that you might get a no, uh, which can be awkward for, for research, of course. But I, I also feel that it, yeah, we need to be very careful with these things so that these technologies can be used in a positive way and there won't be any negative impacts uh, on, 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 on people living in those areas and that therefore we can't use this, this technology and, and, and others to, to their maximum benefit. Hi, folks. This is Meg Stark, producer of Talking Apes and all-around primate enthusiast. We love connecting you to the people who are at the forefront of ape conservation and research around the world, but we need your help. Your support gives apes a voice, and you can help us spread their voices even further by supporting Talking Apes with a monthly donation at globio.org slash donate. That's G-L-O-B-I-O dot org backslash donate. Thank you so much for listening. Now back to the show. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, listening to you just now, I, I'm thinking about some corollaries, I guess. As a filmmaker going in to different places, you know, now you can't even pull up a, a mobile phone without people assuming you're filming with it. Yeah, I do. Um, it, it does make me think again about some of the stuff that that we even have coming up in uh, in a few weeks in Sierra Leone, where we're going to be doing flying some drones around villages and stuff and, and just making them more aware of the fact that we're doing the flying and what we're doing with it. Talk to us a little bit about what, what it is that they can, we can now see that we couldn't see before um, in flying over a forest. And what is it you're trying to see and what is it you want to see? And how does that af affect the way um, we, we move forward in conservation? I think we can see the forest from above in, in, in a detail that we've never been able to do before unless you you had a helicopter with big uh, professional film lens on a camera that you could, could get that resolution but now we can get that from a a, a drone that you can buy for 1500 us you, you can get images of animals and trees where you can see the you can see the fruits you can count the fruits on a tree, which is great for um, people interested in the, the interactions between animals and, and what they eat. So you can do that from the air now. That might actually be more accurate uh, than, than doing it from the ground. Um, you can see the three-dimensional structure of, of the forest in a way that you couldn't do that before. Uh, so that, that's incredibly interesting, uh, in relation to how animals use the canopy. How do they travel through that canopy? How, how, how does that relate to the three dimensionality of that canopy? And how can we measure that? We can, we can do that now with, with drone systems, uh, um, which we couldn't do before at this resolution. We, and then, of course, we can watch animals from an angle, uh, that we, we couldn't easily do before and and can in some cases that leads to better better counts of, of animals we know that, that um, some of the drone counts of birds are more accurate than than the ground counts of people in in open areas and we know that some of the counts of spider monkeys when there are large groups are, are better from drones than from the ground so it allows us to to get data we couldn't get before but and also more accurate data on, on certain things that we were able to get before, but had to do from the ground. That is, that started all with the binocular idea with, with standard visual spectrum cameras, but that has moved beyond that now. Thermal cameras, et cetera, where we can see things that we just couldn't see 
if I'm listening to you right, it seems like we can really break this down into sort of three main areas, surveys, mapping, and enforcement. Is that pretty accurate, yes, would yeah. you say? Yeah. For a few minutes, let's talk about how those three things, how do they work together? How do we integrate those three things using these flying binoculars? Yeah. So, so for, for conservation of many species, these are the key things. We want to know where animals are, how many of them there are, how they're impacted by changes in, in, in the landscape that they live in, and whether people come into these areas and catch or, or kill these animals so that they're being removed. So those are, are, are key things that we want to know for, for conservation management. And drones can help with all three of them. We can, we can as, I, as we've discussed, we can count animals uh, from the, the sky and in in some cases, that only gives us some information of where they are, because we, we see them, but um, we then don't know how many of them there are, because you need to then, to, to be able to do that, you need to correct for the animals that you haven't seen. And, and that's always tricky, because yeah, you see one, that's great, but how many have you missed? How many are under the canopy or are on the ground? So that's something that, that scientists are trying to, to work out for a particular species so that we can, can really estimate the numbers well from drone data as well. The mapping is, is quite well developed with, with drones. There's, there's very good systems to, to collect such data and there's very good software to process so, such data in a, in a very user-friendly way. So we can get these, these maps. And, and the amazing thing about these maps is that they're not only two-dimensional, they're three-dimensional. Somehow these computer programs, they can reconstruct the three-dimensionality of, uh, of a landscape or, or a car if you fly over it and have enough photos because the points that make up the car or the forest are on a large number of different photos. And then the algorithms can, can extract how high all of these points are relative to the others. So you get this in a way, you get a carpet that is draped over the forest that gives you information on the, the three dimensions. So that, that's fantastic because that, that allows you to also look at impact. If a tree has been cut down, then, then you see a, a large gap in it. And, and you can do that over time. So you can do the same flight every, every month or every three months and then compare those images and then compare those heights. So you can see if a forest is growing, if there's gaps opening up. So that's a, a really rich data set to, to, to work with. And then we're, we're, um, using drones to, to find people. And that's, um, mainly done with, with thermal cameras. So cameras that, that can find the, 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 the radiation that, that warm bodies uh, emit. So animals and people light up very, very strongly. So you can see people and animals with those cameras when it when it's dark or and, and and that's very useful to 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 look for people but also for animals uh, so for all these three things drones are are very very useful what you just ended with goes back to something you were saying earlier about looking seeing a species but we don't know how many are under the the canopy one of the topics i wanted to talk to you about was the delivery of other technologies um using drones not just flying over it, looking at what's popping up on the screen or what the camera might take, but actually using the drone as a vehicle to get in other sensors, other devices to measure other things. One of them being, as you were saying, thermal. Uh, one of the biggest issues, especially with primates um, and great apes in particular in places like the Congo Basin is we don't know how many animals are there. We, it's really difficult to come up with conservation strategies because we don't even know how many animals we're dealing with, whether it's we're at that, you know, that the edge of that extinction cliff or we're back some ways from it. And that's going to it's going to really impact the way we create a conservation strategy around that species. Yeah, that, that's that's certainly true. Um, I, thermal allows you to to see animals that are not obscured by vegetation. So for those animals that are underneath in a, in a tree, under a thick canopy, unfortunately, even with thermal, you won't see those. Um, so there's still limitations. So as with any 
<coughs> survey technique, it will not allow you to count every animal that's there. There's still a fraction that we miss. And it's figuring out that fraction and then seeing if this method works better than any of the other methods. Um, we, we don't know yet. Maybe, maybe we'll end up using a combination of methods, having camera traps on the ground and drones in the air to get to the most accurate estimates. <clears throat> Scientists will figure these things out where they're always looking for, for, um, new projects for new integration of, of different um, uh, technologies. So we'll, we'll continue to work on those things. Um, and, and what, what, what drones are not being used for yet is, is indeed to deliver other sensors and picking them up again. Uh, that's certainly something that we, we thought about in, in, in the past already, uh, actually quite soon after we started. Like, what if you could drop microphones in, in, in the, the canopy of a tree and either pick them up or, or maybe even have, have them picked up from the ground and not, not from a drone or, um, and then record the data from those. Could you, could you do other things, drop other technologies in, in areas that are very difficult to get to and leave it there and have a drone pick it up? I think we'll, we'll see that happen as, as the technology yeah, is is being developed further. Um, <clears throat> can drones fly? Because I, 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 and I think another next step there will be to to fly drones in a forest. Now we're, we almost exclusively fly fly them over the forest, uh, and they're not yet in, in sort of an immersive technology that they they fly through the forest. But with avoidance sensors becoming better. I think there will be a point that we'll, we can fly them or, or, or maybe they'll fly themselves in, in a forest. Um, and, and that will open up a completely new world again, because I would love to watch an orangutan with a drone nearby as it's building its nest, get that view that we never have. What are they exactly doing? How do they exactly build, build these things? Um, it would be great to, to, to map plant species up in the, in the canopy. Uh, what kind of epiphytes are there, et cetera. You could just fly up, have the drone fly around and in the tree and then come down again. That would be so cool, but we'll, we'll have to see when that will happen. But I think it will happen as drones, particularly with small drones with lots of sensors. I think there, there's lots of opportunities there. Does that mean in embracing AI a little bit, artificial intelligence a bit more in the sort of brain of the drone? I mean, I'm, as, you're, as you were speaking, I'm envisioning these little sort of dragonfly-sized drones <laughs> with, with a, the ability to look at a, a situation, let's say an orangutan building a nest, and kind of know where to position itself and reposition itself Obviously, we, you know, um, with the, with cameras becoming the with the technology behind cameras, you know, we may have little eyeballs on the thing, so we can actually see and monitor and talk to it. But it seems like that's a merger of technologies that we haven't quite gotten to yet. Yeah, I think I think we'll we'll, we'll that will certainly need to be heavily uh, influenced by by AI on the drone that the brain of the drone can avoid these obstacles and can do it themselves without the operator being involved because it will be, be very difficult for the operator to do so. Um, and, and so that we'll need all these cameras on all sides of the drones. But I think we'll, we'll, we'll see that. I mean, we're seeing it already happening with, with some of the, the ob obstacle avoidance sensors on, on, on drones. They're not yet influenced by AI that much, but. <clears throat> they on the on the standard DJI systems, but at least they allow you to to avoid some obstacles in a simple way. We see it with with the the um, option to to track an an object, whether it's a car or a person skiing or on a, on a bike, with, with with a fairly standard DJI uh, system. Um, so all these things are are becoming more and more. <clears throat> uh, integrated in these systems. And I think there's, there's, of course, a multitude of applications for that outside of the conservation world, which will eventually 
drive this much more. Building inspections, wind turbine inspections, complicated inspections of other industrial structures uh, would benefit greatly from drones that can navigate by themselves through the mazes of pipes and silos and other things that are there. And so I'm, I think for, it will happen eventually and it will be incredibly useful for the study of, of parts of the forest that are so incredibly hard to reach. Anybody who's climbed up a tree with a rope knows how hard it is and how slow it is. And, 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 and to do that in one tree and, and inspect that tree takes multiple days. It, Doing this from more trees is is hard work and dangerous and and <clears throat> needs a lot of equipment. So if drones can help with that, that would be wonderful. It was um, as I mentioned, we were just in Costa Rica, and one of the things that I have begun doing with the drones is is flying them. Um, dolly cams are uh, something used in the movie industry where you run it along a rail and it gives you a nice smooth shot going horizontally or and and. You can use booms to go vertically. And I started using the drone to actually fly up these large emergent trees in the rainforest. Um, it, it's a bit tricky because you have to pick, you know, a spot that you can actually go all the way up and through a poke through a hole. But with the, the zoom lens on the drone now, I, I was able to fix the location and fly up. And it, and it did remind me of being able to scale on a rope and go up one of these big emergent trees and you, as you're moving up all of a sudden you see epiphytes and you see you know um there was a bird in one case that was there and and uh things like that and it was it was an incredible perspective uh, that you know we simply couldn't have gotten a few years ago so it was pretty amazing um i wanted to ask you about uh conservationdrones.org it's a it's a group that you started an organization that that uh, you were one of the founders of Tell me a little bit about conservation.drones.org uh, and, and what the purpose of that was and the kinds of things that you're doing with it. Yeah, so the, the, the purpose was, was, was really to, to share information about drones for conservation purposes. As we started 10 years ago, it was all very new back then. And, and we wanted to, to share our, 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 our knowledge, our, the things we were doing with drones, the, the, hardware we were using, the software we were using, particularly because we were building our own systems then, we thought that was was um, useful. <clears throat> and and, and to, to make people enthusiastic about this new technology. And we're still doing that through uh, conservation uh, drones. Uh, and we, we provided trainings for, for, for people in various countries. We still do that every now and then as well. Um, um, so it's still a, a vehicle that we use to, to post our research on as well. And every now and then a video of, of places where we work and collect data. It's been a bit silent over the past, yeah, two years now because we haven't traveled much. Um, but, but hopefully soon we'll, we'll pick it up again and then post some things on it. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's mainly meant as, as a knowledge exchange platform. And, and a way that people get in touch with us and if they have questions about um, drones and, and conservation. Yeah, I, uh, we might be putting some people in touch with you. as um, We're about to head off to Sierra Leone to start on a, pro a project there in the Loma Mountain area with chimpanzees. And one of the goals is um, with the drones that I'm taking to, to teach the eco-guards how to, how to fly. And um, so... Maybe we can hook them up with you guys um, because it's just no one's been looking at this forest and this mountain mountainous region from the air. Um, mm -hmm. Just even visually, there's just other than Google Earth, there's no way um, to get any imagery of it. So we're going to just start with some basic, you know, visual mapping of the place to get a sense of, you know, where what valleys look like and all of that kind of thing. Great. So, yeah, kind of uh, pretty excited about where we can go with that. Um, before we end, I, I just I also want to plug the book again. Where where can people get um, conservation technology? The new book that's coming out. Um, and on, on, at, it's published by uh, Oxford University Press, so you can get it from their website, but also on Amazon and other booksellers will will have it. 
Okay. And and who who's the intended audience? I mean, what kind kind of folks uh, would find it valuable? Um, students, academics, conservation managers. Uh, the, the the chapters aren't super technical, so they they are understandable for 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 a broad audience, because we also want to to, to specifically target. Uh, sort of the non-academic people working in conservation, of which there are, of course, a lot, and and so that they can learn more about these technologies and think about how they can potentially uh, use them um, for their own purposes, or if they're using one already, how they maybe can use it in different ways or, or add another technology. Because in, in the end, I think... The, the next step in, in much of this is the integration of all these technologies into one monitoring system and, and decision system that will help conservationists to, to keep a good tap on, on what's happening and, 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 and try to inform decisions that conservationists, but also politicians will, will have to make how to, to, um, to, to decrease the negative impact that we're having. What's next? What's next for you in terms of, uh, of, of what do you want to see drones do? What kind of technology? Where would you like to see this evolve? And uh, I mean, where where would you like to push this? Uh, you know, push this technology even off the bleeding edge, so to speak. Is there is there? Where's your vision of of how to apply it and use it and develop it? Um, what I would probably like to see in in Somewhere in the future is a, is a system where everywhere on, anywhere on the planet, uh, you could, you could sort of have a drone collect data for you or, or do it yourself and then have something useful being done with those data through whether it's, it's machine learning that does the first step of finding the animals that you're interested in, in those data or the trees. Or changes in those landscapes, and then have and then have that fed into decision makers their their information. And I, I think we're, I would really, and and then and there are some initiatives going in that way that you you can you can basically hire uh, a pilot anywhere in the world to collect data for you. And and I think that that is a great step into a direction that we really can allow. Uh, for for incredible mapping of, of our planet with with drones, but then we need to also have these shared platforms, which are also uh, developed being developed and are online already. Some of them where drone data can go to, and 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 <clears throat> then you you need to have the the AI behind that to 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 make sense of all those data. But I think that's where for drone wise, where I would really like to see things things go. Where if I want to have some new information about an area where uh, I study orangutans, that I, that I, I go online and an Indonesian pilot will, will fly, collect those data. I get the images, uh, ideally already analyzed with the orangutan nests on it, and and that will lead to a density number, and that will help a, a, a park manager to to make a better decision or a funder. To think, oh, maybe that's a good place to, to provide funds for because the numbers are declining, things like that. I think that's where I would really like to to see things more. Yeah, open data collection, open data sharing, and 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 all with the aim to to improve the management of, of this planet. With with all of this sharing and collection of data, how is there a role for citizen science in all of this? Is I mean, with so many people now having drones in their hands and and really amazing drones. I mean, it does as you said, fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars. You can have a pretty sophisticated machine in your hands. How it seems like there there should be this opportunity to do more citizen science and and then sh- collect and yes, share data. Yes, I, I I think there's huge opportunities there. To have have platforms on which, like like Zooniverse, but then then have it more specific for drone data, <clears throat> where where people can upload data, ask people to to look for objects and and help them find them. So I think that's a that's a, a key thing. And I, and I, I 
I, I do think, though, that, and, and this goes for, for the drone flying as well as for citizen science, that we, we really need to ha- have a world in which access to technology is more equally distributed. It's, yeah, it's incredibly easy for, for us in the UK and the US to, to buy a drone, have it maintained at a company if we want to. Uh, and, but if, if, if you're in Cameroon or if you're on a, a small Caribbean island, it, it's much harder to, to do this in terms of education opportunities to learn how to, to use the technology, to, to buy it, to have the internet to, to do useful things with it. And, and for, 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 if conservation is to be successful, that needs to change very rapidly that this, all this technology and everything that comes with it, the education side, the analyses, et cetera, are, are in the hands of, of people in, in those countries. Um, I think that's, um, hugely important and the citizens in those countries <clears throat> where the animals actually are can, 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 can look at those animals that they become the people that do this and not sort of the, the, the people in, in, in countries where there is an interest, where they have good internet, etc. And so, um, I, I really hope that over the coming years we'll, we'll see changes uh, there as well, uh, because that I think it's a it's a key ingredient to 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 for for technology to be successful. We need to have it accessible to everyone. Once again, I want to thank Serge Witch for sharing his aerial perspective on technology and grade eight conservation science. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, passionate primate people, and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the very forefront of news about our wild primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes or Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast. You should find us there. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas about future podcasts, you can always email us, of course, at media at globio.org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all of her work in pulling together another wonderful podcast. And finally, I would like to thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. So please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation at globio.org. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening.